Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Today we're focusing on a topic that's been really present over the last year, which has included so much change and so much flux for so many people. Some of the most important moments of our lives are crossroads of different kinds. There's a big decision, and we have to pick one thing or another. Going to one school over another, staying in or leaving a relationship, moving to a new city, changing careers, and so on. Sometimes the choices are pretty clear, but often they're not. And inside of those big decisions are often little decisions. How much do we value one thing relative to another? Do we want to be more cautious and hold on to what we have, or is it time to take a big swing? It's all well and good to share some platitude like follow your dreams and let your heart decide, but real life is often a bit more complicated than that. And sometimes it's not even totally clear what we want on the inside. So today we're looking at how to make a big decision. And to help us do that, I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. So dad, how are you doing? I'm really good. And this is one of my favorite topics. Yeah. Because as I think there's a saying in medicine, good judgment comes from experience. And experience comes from bad judgment. So <laughs> I've had a lot of experience <laughs> that might sometimes have fostered some improvement in my judgment, and I'd love to kind of share about that with you. Uh, and I know this forest also is a topic that you have really engaged a lot in your own life, including putting it into practice. Boy, mm-hmm. you have sure mm-hmm. brought these principles down out of the ivory tower. And you know, one thing I was really interested in what you said is the tension between playing it safe with the known versus taking a chance on the unknown. And I wondered Mm -hmm. if you could talk more about that. Yeah, I think that there are some big themes that tend to come up inside of these conversations, inside of these choices when we're making decisions. And something that I was kind of reflecting on prior to this conversation, we were just talking about it a second ago before we started recording, is how all of these decisions are different one school or another, one person or another, one place to live or another, whatever. But if you drill down deep enough, they kind of all become very similar in terms of the process you can go through around making choices. And these big themes tend to emerge over and over again. And I do think that one of them is absolutely this tension between what you know and what you don't. And there are kind of these different biases that are at play here. I talk a lot about biases on the podcast. And one of the big ones is survivorship bias which tends to tilt people toward believing that things are going to work out okay if they take one of those big swings. Kind of like history is written by the winners. Yeah, history is – absolutely. (laughs) History is written by the victors. Including your personal history. Yeah, absolutely. And so we have all of these examples kind of out in the culture of people in very prominent positions who took a big swing and it really worked out well for them. So we can kind of over-infer from that information. And then – On the other hand, that's kind of balanced by this other bias, which you articulated to me beautifully when I was about like 22 years old, um, that I've taken to calling the warm bath, where you, you looked at some things that were going on in my life, and you basically said to me, and I was having a really hard time making a choice around them, and you said, well, Forrest, it's like you're kind of in a lukewarm bath right now. And I said, Dad, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, what a strange thing to say about this situation. And you were like, well, you know, you're sitting in the bath, and the bath is okay, but the water's not getting any warmer. It's just kind of tepid. If anything, it's getting a little colder. And you know that when you stand up, it's going to be more uncomfortable than staying in the warm bath. <laughs> so you have this, there's this conflict, right? You're like not really loving life, but you know that the momentary suffering is going to be significant if you stand up. But then from there, maybe you can make some choices that'll make things better. And I was like, wow, mind blown, light bulb on. I mean, it's an obvious point, but at the same time, sometimes when you like pose things in that really sort of colloquial way, um, it makes a lot of sense and it really connects. And that really landed to me. And so I think that those two tensions are really present for us when we're making big decisions. I think particularly you see that in terms of kind of career choices or Mm. um, major life choices. Do I stick with the thing that I think is going to be safe or do I really pursue my passions in a major way? Right. And it also lines up in terms of short-term costs compared to Mm -hmm. long-term rewards and how people think 
short-term and long-term. Or there might be short-term rewards, right? That, you know, hey, I'm just going to get hammered tonight. Or, hey, yeah. I'm just going to spew. I'm so mad about filling the blank. I'm just going to let it rip. Oh, it feels so good. Ugh. And then people are all lying on the ground around you and you're looking around, wood, <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> so can you say more about short-term, long-term? How do you think about that, especially as a young whippersnapper yourself? Yeah. I mean, looking back over it, I have this kind of tension around it inside my own life where on the one hand, I feel like I really had a pretty great time in my 20s. And on the other hand, now waking up as an early 30s year old, I'm kind of looking around and going, wait a second, maybe there were some choices I could have made a little bit differently from a short-term, long-term standpoint. But I do think that this one's kind of the little sibling to the known and the unknown. Are we prioritizing our, our short-term comfort or earning our happiness or our long-term ones? And a lot of decisions, like you're saying, are uncomfortable in the short term. Getting a degree, going back to school, going to the gym, leaving a relationship that is no longer really serving your long-term goals, that can be really uncomfortable. But over the long term, there are often benefits that we find here. And I think that some of the decision-making around both of these things, whether we choose the known or the unknown, or whether we kind of lean more into the short term or the long term, it gets to something that we're going to talk about a little bit later, which is this idea of what's your actual safety net. Hmm. And having a really clear seeing of your life, your prospects in different areas, and what kind of built-in safety nets you do or don't have. Because, I mean, just speaking frankly about it, I was coming from a situation where I was an educated white male who was coming from a uh, an environment where there wasn't any resource scarcity. I had a huge safety net, just like yeah. an enormous safety net underneath me. My worst case scenarios were not that bad. So it allowed me to both have a lot of fun and kind of not worry about it so much and also lean into the unknown a little bit more mm. because I knew that my worst case outcomes weren't really that bad. And of course, that's an extremely privileged viewpoint. Yeah. But- it's really about clear seeing. Like if you operate from that place of privilege, like I did, you can be clear seeing about the ways in which you can push your edges. And at the same time, if you aren't in that circumstance, wow, you got to really have your head on your shoulders about what choices are going to, you know, be very kind of, I don't really want to say cold and calculating, but maybe a little bit cold and calculating in terms of like what's actually going to give you the most value in your life and what's going to provide you the security that you really need. Yeah, I think about two kinds of situations I've been in from time to time as a therapist, talking with someone about a big choice they're making. And definitely I've been with people on the one hand who are afraid to do a certain thing. Let's say they're afraid to go to school or they're afraid to you know, leave a, a warm bath of a job that's kind of crummy yeah. for something mm -hmm. different maybe or and mm -hmm. they're really worried about, you know, that if they make a mistake, there'll be a disaster. And so one thing I might do actually is say, well, I kind of want to breach a taboo topic here in therapy world in which people are routinely comfortable talking about sex. But God forbid we talk about their money, even if they know mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. it's a legally protected, highly confidential environment. So I'll ask them essentially, well, gee, bottom ballpark, bottom line, what's your net worth today? How much money do you have? And um, people will kind of blink, and they'll sometimes they'll they'll say something, and it's really clear they truly do have a safety net. They really could mm -hmm. afford to do something on the one hand, and so for them, the learning, the growth, the revelation is to realize I was underestimating my resources, which is one of the you know you, we can make different mistakes. We can underestimate resources, we can overestimate them, we can overestimate threats, or we can underestimate threats. So we don't want to make any of these kind of mistakes, but they were making the mistake of underestimating their resources. Go the other way. I've definitely talked with people, and they're telling me they're thinking about doing something, leaving kind of the known, launching into the unknown. And in conversation, it becomes really clear. They have no safety net. Mm -hmm. They don't have good resources. They don't yeah. have friends whose floor they could sleep on. You know, I dropped out of college. I had a friend whose floor I could sleep on. I had, yeah. a, I had a safety net in that regard at least. You know, I had access literally to food stamps. I mean, do people have access to that kind of stuff? You know, what's the safety net? Or do you have any kind of health care? Or do you have a little money in the bank? Or, you know, mm -hmm. and sometimes the first thing to do is to, to quote Baron von Clausewitz, Prussian general, secure a base of operations 
of some kind, as best you can realistically. You know, do you have a credit card? Do you have a place to live? Do you have friends who will come through for you at least a little bit? Do you have family? You know, do you have strengths inside? Do you have capabilities? These kinds of things. And sometimes there's a real wake-up call for people. First, build that safety net. First, secure Mm -hmm. your base of operations. And then from that more stable platform, kaboom, then you can launch. This reminds me of a kind of funny conversation that we had back in the day where you uh, recounted some tales of dumpster diving and the dumpsters behind grocery stores and things like that because they would throw away (laughs) any box that had like a minor defect in it. This was when you were, uh, I think it was when you were in your 20s and you were doing stuff with- I dropped out of college, yeah. Yeah, 19, I dropped out of college, whatever. Um, And my point in saying that is just that having a sense of resources that are available to you can give you some clarity on what good choices and bad choices were. Mm -hmm. You knew, even as somebody who was making a choice, you were making the choice to drop out of college and do other things and explore other opportunities, where you went, okay, I'm not going to go hungry because worst case scenario, I'm really comfortable jumping in the dumpster if yeah. that's what I got to do, you know? You were real about <laughs> it with yourself. has a lot of sprouted potatoes. <laughs> yeah, and 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 the bottom line is that like that's a choice that you were willing to make, and I don't know if I would have been willing to make yeah. the same choice. Just like knowing our different characters, our different personalities, <laughs> uh, my, my squeamishness relative to you, you know, whatever, however you want to put it. Um, but the knowledge of yourself, that yeah. knowledge of your core nature, your core values, can really be very informative in terms of understanding how big or how small that safety net is. And that just connects me to values, like I said a second ago, deciding what you want to prioritize within your life. Is your true value a job that feels secure, mm-hmm. that's going to check off the bills, that you can kind of roll into at nine in the morning and just chuck along until six o'clock and check out and be done with it? Or is your real value a job, an occupation, a pursuit that you feel you derive more fulfillment from? And I'm not saying that you can't have both. Of course, some people can have both, but often we make choices in our lives. I made a choice pretty early on in my life, late in high school, early in college, to not do the arts professionally. That was a choice that I made. Elements of that choice were conscious, elements of it were unconscious. Um, even though I found the arts immensely fulfilling. I love doing stuff with music. I love doing stuff with theater, love doing stuff with dancing. But I knew inside of myself that I also had a lot of friends that I saw out there in the arts. I had, as they say, a lot of comps for what that lifestyle looks like. And man, it's a hard lifestyle to do that professionally, to have it be your primary mode of income. And I just knew that that wasn't what I wanted from myself, even though I would find the work itself very fulfilling. And I think that there's, you know, that's okay. Like, again, we have such a cultural narrative around follow your heart and find your fulfillment and do what, what, you, what you're really passionate about. Um, but we can have different sets of values and we can have different things that we want to prioritize inside of our lives. And one of the things that I wanted to prioritize was comfort, was feeling like I had enough, was feeling like I wasn't constantly hustling for my next gig. And sure, there are the rare people, the 99.99999% of people in the arts where that's like not their existence. But for the overwhelming majority of people, you know, it's tough. And I just, I, I knew myself and I knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do. So alongside that, you can, for yourself, choose the set of things that you're really going to care about it and identify what you really are uh, fulfilled by and what you really do love, including if that fulfillment comes from just a sense of more safety and security. I think you're getting at, in effect, two things that are intertwined. First, being honest about your nature and what your priorities are, your, your, your key values. You know, what's most important at this point in your life? And then related to that, there's the question about the ways in which those values or priorities might evolve over time. They might change over time. And then it becomes a question of time, timing. Are you staying too long or jumping out too quickly. And I've made mistakes on either side. For example, a person who might say, as I did, oh boy, uh, you know, I really want to uh, explore all kinds of personal growth things in my 20s and do this and that. You know, the 20s started to stretch into the early 30s and it was like, whoa, I need to kind of get organized here and create a foundation that'll be the basis for my work life in some substantial way going forward. And to kind of stop 
on any given month, any given quarter, three months, it was okay, but I was sort of drifting. People can mm, drift mm -hmm. way too long. Yeah, like, totally. You can get kind of into a, you can get into the bathtub and mm -hmm. on any given day, it would just be, you know, net painful to get out of it, but you just stay too long and it becomes kind of stagnant over time. And, or people just bail too quickly and they kind of are grandiose and think, oh, I could find another great relationship, no big deal. I'll find someone even more perfect. Mm, That's easy. Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. maybe not. I mean, I maybe made a, not. Yeah, I made a career choice in my early twenties to walk away from something that was enormously fulfilling and used all of me in all kinds of great ways. And mm, it took me thirty mm -hmm. years to yeah. find my way back into that total package. Uh, some years ago, in terms of people having different priorities, I'll tell you a quick little story. I don't know if I've told you this story. Uh, I have a dear, dear friend, first name Bob who uh, is a high-level physician at this point. And at the time, he, he was telling me the story. We were rock climbing. It was about 35 years ago. And he was, at that point, just finishing being a chief resident somewhere on his way to a fellowship somewhere. He uh, was telling me a story in which, in a regional hospital, uh, he was flown via helicopter to a small farming town and the helicopter landed at this tiny little intersection in the kind of the middle of the countryside where he was then rushed to a farm where a little boy, so this is trigger warning here, trigger warning here, had been inadvertently attacked. For some reason, the sweet family dog just attacked the boy and chewed up his throat. Mm. And so my friend Bob had to, in a matter of minutes or less, slip a tiny little tube into the floppy airway, otherwise the kid would die. Right there, total pressure. Can you intubate this kid right now, right? Or there's gonna be a bad outcome. And I said to Bob, Bob, how can you handle that kind of pressure? Like, whoa, what was that like? And he looked at me and he knew I'd been self-employed forever. And he said, Rick, for me, pressure is not knowing where my paycheck's coming from. You yeah. Know, right? <laughs> <laughs> different strokes for different folks. Yeah, no, I think that that's a great point. It's a, it's a great articulation of what I'm trying to get at here, which is two things. First thing, obviously, know thyself. Second yep. thing, it's okay for different people to have different priorities. Okay, so that was sort of the forest part of the conversation. Now I want to go over to a little bit more the Rick part of the conversation. Uh-oh. Yes, which, which has to do with this. <laughs> when I was thinking about topics for the podcast, this one really popped up for me uh, recently because I was having a conversation with Elizabeth, my girlfriend, where she was talking to a friend and I was kind of participating in the conversation about how she made the decision to start graduate school a couple of years back. And she said sort of offhandedly that a big part of that decision was talking to, hello, you. Um, you what? really walked through the pluses and minuses <laughs> with her, including kind of the math behind the finances. You really calmed some of her fears around, you know, what the future would look like, what it would really be like to be a therapist. And uh, do I even want to do this? It takes so long. Do I want to invest this much in this sort of vague career that I don't know that much about right now? All of that. It was a really hard decision for her, and you really just approached it through this methodical fashion that was a very different way to approach decision-making for her, and no one had ever really done that with her. And this helped me kind of realize that I'd always gotten the, the Rick School of Decision-Making in my life, <laughs> and many people, most people, have not. So I often tease you for kind of having a four-point plan for everything, but in this case, that methodical approach really makes sense, and I would love to sort of walk through with you some theoretical big decision, and people might follow along with their own big decision and just see if there's anything in this conversation that they find helpful. Well, thank you. At the heart of it all, for me, the essence is to use analysis to inform intuition. Mm, that's a great phrase. Use analysis to inform intuition. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that one down. That's good. <laughs> that's, that's going up on our social media somewhere. <laughs> That's going to be right up with what's on my T-shirt right now, Happy Camper, <laughs> which is a benefit T-shirt for, I think, the American Park Association or something. Anyway, yeah, you, at the end of the day, you got to go with your gut. At the end of the day, what does it feel like? Okay, great. But boy, we can sure use analysis to inform you know, our underlying intuitive, nonverbal, soulful wisdom. So that's mm. kind of a framework here. Do you want to maybe name a, I can think of two kinds of sort of big decisions often people have, uh, 
Yeah, my experience with this is really just what I said toward the beginning, which is that if you drill even a couple inches beneath the surface, yeah. a lot of the processes between these different kinds of decisions start to blur together. And I think that you can approach most decisions through this sort of framework that you're going to offer here today. Um, but a couple common ones to just raise a few that people might be thinking about are the first one, job choices of different kinds. Do I want to career choices? Do I want to move to this career or that career? Do I want to go with this job or that job? Invest in training or don't invest. Yeah, invest in training. Keep on going with what I'm doing. Start a business. Sure, and, totally. End a business. Yep. Yeah, those are big, big, big decisions. Um, mm -hmm. Another big decision that I would frame is maybe like a lifestyle choice, for lack of a better way of putting it. Where do I want to live? Where do I want to yeah. be? What kind of a lifestyle do I want to cultivate? Do I want which of these values do I want to pursue that I was naming before? Do I want to live in this country or that country? You know, whatever. So those are those are maybe two big typical ones that people run into. I think the third one is having to do with relationships. Mm. Do I enter this relationship or that relationship? How do I want to change my behavior inside of a relationship? Do I want to stay with this person or leave this person? We have a lot of content related to relationships, so maybe we can kind of set yep. that one aside. But I think that you could also apply very similar decision-making to choices inside of a relationship. That, no, that that's all super great. I, I would probably add things like uh, consequential decisions, like, sure. for example, health choices. Mm. Well, so much to say about it, and I appreciate that setup. I guess the first thing I would just kind of offer is that it's really helpful to sort of slow down and unpack the parts, the pieces that are in play for you, and just be mindful. You know, what's the part that you hope for, you dream for, you long for? What's the part that's about your fears? You know, what are the voices of other people? What are they telling you? Uh, what's your gut tell you? What are you thinking about? You know, what are some of the relevant objective factors, like the cost of grad school, and also, though, what a person can make financially as a therapist reasonably over a 30-year career? Kind of what are the pieces? You sort of unpack it. So you sort of start there. And... Um, maybe we could even pretend, Forrest, that you are someone who is grappling with a big life decision. Okay, sure. Yeah. Would you, you want to play act this a little bit? Yeah, you could pretend, okay. even if there's a little bit of verite in it. <laughs> it's kind of a life imitating art or art imitating life sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Anyway. So, so obviously, to to say something off the bat, a, a graduate school decision is a very bougie decision. This is not a decision that's available that's right. to everyone. Mm -hmm. But let's not get fixated on it's for graduate school, which is mm -hmm. super bougie. Think about this in the context of any kind of business decision or any kind of educational decision or really any kind of life decision. Great, including things like: Do you want to get married? Do you want to get divorced? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, or really big decisions about care of an aging parent or a, a moral decision, a moral decision. Should you stand up to a particular bully? Mm -hmm. So using this, you know, fairly, you know, privileged choice, let's say, as a, as a laboratory, well, one of the first questions is short-term, long-term. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of helpful to unpack, okay, what are the costs? What are the short-term mm. costs or the potential costs that you know about, right? So you might say, well, there's the cost of the money, tuition, there's the time I'll be spending in it. I know there'll be a certain amount of things like in grad school that I'll have to put up with that I'd really rather not. I got to listen to some boring professor. I've got to deal with some person sitting next to me who's making strange noises while they eat lunch and I don't know, stuff. Okay, fine. I have to commute to it. Plus also there's the opportunity cost of what gets crowded to the side by doing this particular thing. Quick sidebar to really underline opportunity costs because they tend to be out of, out of mind. We don't tend to focus on them because they're not prominent in the moment. It's what we're pushing aside or missing out on because we're doing this particular thing. Think about all the money and the time, so forth, that would be invested in a grad school. Hmm, could it, would it be invested better elsewhere, let's say? So you kind of do that part. And then another thing is the category of sort of fears. And this overlaps with costs, but I think it's helpful to pull it out because underneath it all, sometimes we avoid do doing certain things that have clear benefits because we have fears related to them. 
Uh, mm. We're trying, we're trying mm-hmm. to avoid key experiences, yeah. or we think certain kind of bad things would happen or might happen. So they're like I'm saying, they're the known costs and the the dreaded threats, the feared sure. threats. Okay, and some of those so, are rational, and some of them are less rational. Right, yeah. but naming them, naming mm-hmm. them, like you know, I'll go to this school. Let's say hypothetically, but my own background as a kid, I, this would be true for me. Mm-hmm. Was I felt like an outsider and kind mm-hmm. of unwanted, rejected in a group, and I'm going to feel weird and insecure, and I'm, they won't like me that much, and there'll be all this weird stuff with people, and yeah. I don't. It'll be bad. Historically, but, school has been a place of stress for me. I have a lot of bad memories about this kind of an environment, even if I might know rationally that I'm 20 years older now than I yeah. was then. You know, whatever it might be, that can still appear in your brain, and it's it's good to acknowledge it. Yeah, I'm afraid I'll do badly on tests. Yeah. I'll get shamed. My teachers publicly. won't like me. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you, so you try to name those fears and and foreground them, make them make them clear. You and I have talked a lot about the ways in which so much of our psychology and our neuroticism it boils down to um, avoiding the dreaded experience, and and therefore, unfortunately, living inside the bars of an invisible cage that's smaller than it really really needs to be. All right, that part. And then last, what are the benefits? What uh, could this do for you to do? You know, if you were to take this step, what kind of, let's say, money could you make from it? What kind of standing might it offer you? What kind of intrinsic benefits? There's a real important distinction here between sort of outcome benefits and process benefits. Could you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So let's say you think to yourself, well, I'll go to that grad school and, you know, I'll kind of suffer through it and then I'll have to suffer through the internship and getting my license. But at the end of the day, you know, three, four, five years out when the whole process is over minimally, you know, I'll be in a particular position, right? And then I'll have opportunities, right? I'll be licensed. I'll be able to make more money. I'll be able to do this thing I like doing. I'll have a certain standing. People will look at me in a different way. I'll, I'll have that. That'll be great. You know, that's in the future. But what about the intrinsic values along the way? For example, intrinsically, I like learning new things. Intrinsically, I like getting good at things, acquiring competence in various ways. Oh, along the way, there'll be a sense of community, collegiality, let's say, with other people. I like that part. Um, I like exposing myself to, let's say, a body of knowledge, psychology broadly, that uh, has a lot of value for me and I think is kind of noble and cool. You know, we could also say if someone went to music school, they'd be immersed in music, and that's a really beautiful thing. You know, and so there's these are intrinsic; they're along the way, and uh, intrinsic values tend to be uh, particularly worth um, a, a, f- a few gold stars. You know, compared to instrumental values that are more in the future, because intrinsic values are in the present and they tend to be closer to our heart. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have we have values. And then it's important to really, um, I think, talk about different kinds of values. That, and I'll just kind of quickly go through some. Some are very understandable and practical. Financial values, uh, where do you want to live? Where do you want to set up your base, that strong base, you know, secure base of operations or that secure base in attachment theory as well? Where do you want to set up your base? You can work backwards from the result you want, let's say, in terms of a future, like getting a license. What state do you want to practice in, most likely, or want to have the option to practice in? So, you, you know, you kind of, those are very practical values. Then there are values that I think are, are more about wholesome prestige values, wholesome social supplies, without getting egoic about it or narcissistic or weird. Still, yeah, you would wish for your friend that they be respected and esteemed and uh, brought into a circle. That's an important value. Let's call it more social values alongside the very kind of practical, particularly financial values. And then also, there's a really important value, and you could think of Maslow's hierarchy almost in terms of this, self-actualization values. Yeah. Is there something in you that's like a thoroughbred that's been pulling a plow up and down um, you know, corn rows year after year after year, and there's nothing wrong with that but wow, that thoroughbred has it in its nature to run. There's something in you to express. There's something in you to manifest, to make real, to bring into form you know, out in the world, let's say, that, that you really want to do. You know, that's important to you. 
And when you look back on on this life, from the view from the porch, you know, when you're really comfortable in 90 and whatever, and you're looking back uh, on what you chose to do when you were in your 20s and 30s and 40s and so on, you know, what will you be glad in the future that you've done now, uh, including really honoring the expression, the manifestation of, of things that are really deep and important in you? So that's another kind of value there. And then maybe just to just super finish it off, at least this part. I don't want to hear what you have to say. And Yeah, totally. There's the fundamental value of, as Mary Oliver put it, tell me, what is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? It's the existential value frame in which there's a recognition with whatever connotations are meaningful to you that this is a fleeting and precious life with an uncertain lifespan inherently. And uh, as Stephen uh, Levine uh, wrote really beautifully in his book, uh, we will all cross a line in, after which we have less than one year to live. And almost no one will know when they've crossed that line, for sure. And so there's something about that that I think I've just seen a lot of people, some people are biased toward impulsive darting from this or that. That's a problem. I've seen many, many more people who keep deferring their dreams, you know, that dry up over time, like in the phrase from Langston Hughes, I think, like a raisin in the sun and a dream deferred. And, you know, in this life, I'm just kind of biased toward it will be gone. Most people, if anyone, will know anything about you in a hundred years, definitely in a thousand years. Carpe diem. This is mm-hmm. your life. Seize mm-hmm. it. Seize the day. Squeeze the orange. Squeeze the juice out of the orange, as you put it. <laughs> and to frame it in that way, not to be impulsive, yeah. but yeah. to beware the tendency to keep deferring. Keep beware the ways in which good can crowd out great. I appreciate how you kind of teased out those different elements to this process. To sort of say it back to you and maybe summarize it a little bit. It sounds like you're starting with a very coherent cost-benefit analysis, to put it really, really simply. You're looking at your intrinsic and extrinsic benefits, the things that you could benefit or that would feel good inside of yourself and also feel good out in the world, including things like self-actualization. And then you are contrasting those with the costs, the very real costs Uh, in terms of opportunity cost, even the small annoyances that come along from doing something, like in this fictitious example we're working with, you know, you have a professor who you're just really bored for three hours a day when you take their class. Uh, You have some classmate that just really grinds your gears for whatever reason. These are small annoyances, but hey, it impacts your quality of life when we scale them up over um, 50 or 100 different incidences of this that will happen over the course of these in, again, my example, three years or four years, whatever it turns out to be. And alongside that, I think that something that you're pointing to that you haven't said overtly, but I'm going to kind of say for you, is I think that one of the practices that can be so helpful when making a decision is writing things down. And I want to acknowledge that kind of in the press of the podcast here, I moved through a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like 10 things. Sure eight minutes or something like that. So yeah, people may want to really listen to that. And if you're interested in doing a real process for yourself, Mm -hmm. go through each one of the little distinctions I'd made or the key points, particularly ones if that speak to you, do the ones especially Mm -hmm. that speak to you and slow it down and really, really use that as kind of a framework that might really guide you. It'll guide your intuition to go through that kind of analysis. Yeah. And I'll really tease those out also in the notes that we do for the Patreon. So I'll try to go through and listen back to all of the little ones you did and just kind of mark those down and people can kind of follow along almost as as a worksheet if they want to. That's good. But for me in my life, I've often felt a lot of internal resistance to writing things down when Mm -hmm. I go through this process. I think some of it's because when it just stays in the theater of the mind, you feel kind of uncommitted to it. And it's just kind of a thought you're having. But when you start really processing something with pen and paper, it makes it feel a lot more real. And that can, in a weird way, be kind of threatening. At least I've had that personal experience. But there's something that really casts just a harsh light in a good way 
in terms of pen and paper, writing it down and being very meticulous around going through each of these little points that you've raised. Oh, that's great. I'll give you two little stories kind of about this. One involved a um, teenage girl and she's probably maybe a senior in high school and she was kind of thinking about her future Mm. and, you know, making understandable cross-benefit choices about whether to go to college or not or different kinds of programs, where it would go for her. She had an interest in doing certain things that might lead her further into grad school and credentialing of different kinds. Should she do it? And where did life fit in with she wanted to get married eventually, she wanted to have a child, just all that process. And I remember to this day pulling out a yellow pad. You're familiar with my yellow pads. And I basically said, okay, let's just sort of do it. Let's run it out. And mm-hmm. I just ran out like a series of columns, like 40 columns or something like that. Or maybe I used several sheets of paper. I put them side by side. I might have taped them together. I forget. And we just ran it out, the years and mm. her age. That is very sobering. Yeah. Right? Uh, right, the line, the prospect of being hung in the morning concentrates yeah. a person's mind. Well, the prospect of becoming 50 or 70 or 90 can really concentrate your mind. And so here she was. She was maybe 17, and I just kind of ran it out. Well, here mm-hmm. you are, you know, and now you're turning 25, and her eyes are starting to bug out. Now you're 30, 35, 40, 50, 60. You know, let's work backwards. What do you want your life to look like? Yeah. Yeah, how do you want it to be? My dear friend Tom once said these, this profound question to me, these two questions in a row when I was angsting about, you know, how it would be for me when I was 40, and I was probably 37 at the time. He said, well, do you plan on being 40? I was like, what? Yeah. And he said, how do you want it to be? Kind of really simple. So there you are. So I laid it out for her, and it kind of blew her mind. She said, I hate you, Rick. <laughs> I also love it. But I hate you. <laughs> you know, to just trying to play it out. Yeah. You know, like here you are. Like, what, let's just. By when do you want to have children? Mm. Okay. Well, in the reality of the uncertainty sometimes around having children, when do you want to start that process? Oh, okay. Do you want to be married? Do you want? To, how long do you want to have been married? Roughly before you start that process. Oh, well, you kind of need, want to be married mm-hmm. by roughly this age. Well, gee, what do you kind of need to get going in your life to have a good likelihood of being married by that age? So that sure. you kind of do that. Oh, whoa. And then where does work fit into all that? And oh, wow, wow, wow. I really better go to college next year mm-hmm. <laughs> or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, and, totally. And I want to stress the point. It's not about over-controlling the future. Yeah. There's lots of uncertainty. I get it. I get people have different decision processes. Uh, I'm pretty thoughtful and careful and so forth. Other people, their style is more just, you know, shoot from the hip, play it by ear, fly by the seat of their pants. That's more their style. But, you know, trust in God, but tie your camel. Mm -hmm. If you want Mm -hmm. a kite to soar, you need to anchor it. Otherwise, it'll flop to the ground. And here's the thing. I've done a lot of business consulting, too. Maybe many people on the podcast don't know that. But I've spent five years actually doing a program for small business owners as well as other kinds of more corporate consulting. And one of the things that struck me is that you would have people who are very good at something they love doing, like making art or making music or designing landscapes or or working with people as a therapist, but they didn't like the business around that particular Mm, thing. mm -hmm. And because they didn't like the business, they they did not get skillful at it. They did not get good at it. So they were constantly being harassed and burdened and hindered by business issues that they they didn't handle properly. So paradoxically, the more you hate the business of what you do, uh, you you ought to get good at the business of what you do. So you could do it as efficiently as possible to clear as much space as possible for making your art or your music or doing the soulful, humanistic kind of work you really, really, really want to do. So you know, there's mm-hmm. there's kind of a place mm-hmm. for that. So I want to mention all that in in my story about kind of forecasting your future, and the value, actually, of looking backwards from ballpark loosely, how you sort of hope and how you want to aim toward it being by a certain age. Well, if you want it like that by then, tick-tock, what would make sense to start working on tomorrow? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's beautifully said. And part of the benefit from that is that it allows you to be real about the way that things are in the present. 
if you look at your romantic relationship, let's say, to kind of leave my grad school example and wander somewhere else a little bit, and you say to yourself, you know, I really want to have kids with my partner, whoever my、mm-hmm. partner is. Well, you know that your current partner doesn't want to have kids. Okay, now that's a choice for you, right? That doesn't mean that you have to leave that person. There might be other options here, and maybe you decide that the value that you get out of the relationship in a lot of other lovely ways more than makes up for the fact that you're not going to have children with this person. But it's clarifying. You get real about it. You look at it and you go, "I'm not going to keep on just holding out hope that one day this person's mind might change." I'm gonna look at my life with clear eyes and say, "Hey, if this person really holds firm to that, and they say no, I I don't want to have children, I don't want to raise a child, am I okay with that version of my life?" And if you're just like, "This is a total deal breaker for me," wow, that's really informative about the decisions that you start to make in the moment. Yes, and a key takeaway from what you've said is that for all the ways in which you and I are talking about good process. Which is your best odd strategy for a good result in terms of making a good decision, right? But good process is not a guarantee of a good result. It just increases the likelihood of it. And sometimes people end up with good results after bad process. <laughs> But that doesn't mean that's a different kind of survivorship bias. That、yeah. doesn't mean that that you don't need to think about process the next time you have an opportunity. And a couple of things here when I think about people reflecting on their career. There's some principles that have really made sense to me over time. Part, a lot related to mistakes I made when I was mm. younger. Mm-hmm. First is think over the long haul, because the costs of whatever you're doing to get into this career、uh, or business or choice you're making, those costs will be amortized over the rest of your life. Certainly over the rest of your productive career phase, and the benefits of whatever you've built through those costs. As a platform for yourself, or credentialing, or you've opened certain doors by doing by paying those costs of different kinds, those benefits will accumulate, typically exponentially. They're going to keep compounding over the entire course of your life. And when you kind of get that, oh, costs amortized over the whole course of life, spread out. In other words, while benefits compounding and growing exponentially, wow, that makes a lot of sense to me. A second key principle, especially related to career and vocation, really, really broadly, and you can apply this to a lot of other areas too, is to think about the intersection of three circles. What do you love doing? Just naturally, you. You really like it. You brighten when you do it. It's intrinsically rewarding to you. You really love doing it. Second, what are you naturally talented at? What do you, you know, usually the best person in the room at that particular thing, like. Handling a certain kind of conversation, or tuning in to a child who's upset, or or connecting with with a cat or a dog or a horse, or figuring out、uh, an analytic problem. Just what are you naturally really really talented at, talented at, distinct from your skills that are acquired, but talents. And then third, what do you value? What do you really care about? What's really important to you? You know, what do you want to help? Where do you want to contribute? So then, if you think about the combination. Of any two of those three items, and ideally the combination of all three—it's like the intersection of a circle of those three circles. The rest is details. If you situate your life broadly and your call it work aspects, including family making,、um, if you situate that at the center of those three circles, the rest is details, and you're most likely going to be good to go. Yeah, I think that that's a really good framework that just kind of centralizes a lot of what you've been saying so far about making good decisions. I also want to tease out something、uh, that relates to the example you were giving earlier about working with the the teenage girl, yeah, and kind of forecasting her life. Is that after a fashion you were looking for what I call a comp, and I、mm. use that word sort of loosely. I, I used it offhandedly earlier, and this is just an example. Of what a life could be like, basically, it's who's somebody else who's doing something kind of like what you want to be doing,、um, who is an exemplar for you of what the, you know, don't be crazy about it. Not everyone is going to turn into the, I don't know, the the Bill Gates of insert business、mm-hmm. profession or whatever, but like some realistic thing to shoot for you where you go, hey, 
what that person is doing seems pretty cool, whether it's in the area of romance. Like you look at somebody else's relationship and you go, wow, that's what I really want for myself. Or it's the area of business, or it's the area of uh, lifestyle design, where they're living and what their life looks like. And I think that having a very clear sense of what the realistic outcomes are can be extremely clarifying for people in terms of what they should be shooting for. Like, what is the 90 percentile or 80 percentile outcome that's a positive outcome that you could get out of this? Uh, to return to the example I gave earlier about the arts and uh, my, my choice to not go into it professionally, a big part of the reason that I chose not to is because I saw what the 80th percentile or the 90th percentile looked like, even a lot of success. And I wasn't super happy about what that would mean for my life. Because a lot of the time we can get seduced by what the 99.999% outcome looks like. And we kind of lose sight of what the 70 or 80 or 90% outcome looks like. And that's true for almost any choice that we make in life. And alongside that, if you can't find a comp for what you're looking for, that's normally a red flag. Sometimes there are ideas that are truly revolutionary. Sometimes you could be looking for something and you really identify a unique thing that is deeply fulfilling for you. This is probably particularly true in business, but I think it's also true in life. If you're looking for a kind of relationship that is a very specific way and you can't find any examples of that very specific way around you and what your friends are doing or what's displayed in pop culture or what you see on social media, you just have no examples of this wow, maybe your expectations are out of line with reality to be perfectly straightforward about it. And that can also be a really good indicator of a place where, okay, maybe I'm going to need to make a couple of compromises here in order for me to realistically find something that's close enough to what I want. It's not perfect, but it's close enough. And I can be okay with that. I'm starting to think here about the way that someone might be listening to this and feeling frustrated because in their life, for whatever reason, they they really are constrained and these opportunities are just not available to them. I mean, i am been extremely struck more and more deeply, really, every year. You know, it's increasingly struck by the ways in which various people's social position, you know, constrains them currently and in previous times, many, many ways, has constrained them terribly, terribly. Many, many examples of that. And people just had no choice. They had no options. That was the way it was. So I just want to acknowledge that and make the point that we can still make choice we can still make choices. We can still start taking a different course. That's what we're really talking about. In your mind, you can always practice. You can always make major decisions about how you want to relate to your experiences and relate to your conditions, certainly inside your own mind, even if there's absolutely nothing you can do about your physical body or the environment around you, including the other people in it. And additionally, it's often the case that even in situations that are pretty barren of resources and support and really pretty constraining, there's often the possibility that if you spend somewhere between one and 59 minutes a day, less than an hour a day, you can actually build something significant over the course of some months and certainly a few years. Good honor to them. Wow, I feel so much respect for that kind of thing. You know, one hit wonders, it's hard to mobilize much respect for that. But people who grind away year after year, step by step, bit by bit, in really tough conditions, swimming against the stream, wow. Tons of respect for that. And I just want to really underscore, underscore that that's a very real way to put into practice uh, the principles that you and I are exploring in reference to some things maybe that might seem loftier or more privileged. But we can bring these approaches to bear even in very, very down-to-earth, constrained situations. I think that's really great. It's right on. Um, I do want to be a little bit careful about this starting to feel a little lofty in terms of what yeah. we're kind of talking about. So maybe if we could bring it down in terms of some of those very specific kind of granular practices that you've done when you've walked somebody through um, making a big decision. The point I want to make here is that sometimes our uh, decisions that are really consequential 
might boil down to whether you're going to use a particular word or not in a very important relationship, like marry. <laughs> you know, like I had to really, really, really grapple with whether I was going to use that word, you know. So that sometimes that's the case. But often what we're grappling with is um, kind of more complicated, sometimes really quite financial. So I want to kind of speak to that. And I want to say that it can be very helpful to look at choices in the real. Bring it out of your head, bring it down to the real. Uh, what do you need to do today and tomorrow and the day after to be set up in a better place next year? Same with a decision, let's say, about the financials of some choice. And one of the things that was really has interested me a lot is people, most people, don't think very analytically about money. You know, they have an emotional charge on it. They don't just bring to bear a certain arithmetic, lemonade stand way of looking at it. So, for example, we might say, oh, I'm thinking about starting a business or I'm thinking about investing a certain, you know, risking a certain amount of my money and to try to make something happen. Should I do it or not do it? Okay. So what's really helpful is to bring it down to something really concrete and specific. So with regard to grad school, let's use that. How much would it cost? All right. Tuition and other stuff. Be honest. Just the whole, the whole ride. All right. Two years of grad school. After that, do you figure you're going to be able to, do you have any more costs? No. Uh, going to make a living even as an intern? Yeah. It's going to be tight, but I can, I can do that. Okay. Or maybe you need to borrow some more money to just sort of cover your living during those couple of years when you're functioning kind of as an apprentice and you're not, no money's coming in, whatever it might be. What's the price tag? Bottom line, it maybe it's a big number. Maybe it's like $50,000. That's a lot of money. Okay, $50,000 over here. Now let's look over here. Let's look at the benefits potentially of once you're licensed, how much money you might be making. So you, then you just start playing it out. Well, ballpark, people like you, you know, new therapists say, how many sessions per week are you thinking about realistically doing? 10, 15, 20? Let's pick a conservative number. Let's just say 15. Oh, okay. What do you think is the going rate for someone like you in the general marketplace with or without insurance? You know, ballpark, pick a number. Let's make up a number, $80, $80 an hour, all right? Well, right there already, you know, someone, you know,'s eyes could start to be bugging out at the prospect of making that much money, let alone 120 an hour or even more after a few years. So then you just burp, burp, multiply. What's 15 hours per week times 100 times 80 dollars an hour? If I'm doing my math correctly, I think that's 1,200 dollars a week. Oh, play that out. 1,200 dollars a week. How much is that per year? That's $60,000 a year. Wow, working 15 hours a week. Now, on top of that, there's some other stuff, but it all adds up to around 20, 25 hours a week. Wow. So on the side, maybe there's some side gigs, teaching dance, some other kind of stuff, something or other like that. So you have 60 grand a year, maybe plus all this other stuff. And then, okay, what's it cost you to live? Ballpark. Okay, paying taxes, you got to count taxes. Don't forget taxes. All right. That means, hypothetically, you could bang on the $50,000 debt at the rate of $10,000 a year and be done with it in five years while also banking, while also saving an extra 10 grand a year. What? I'm not trying to talk him into it. I'm just trying to sketch a very plausible, realistic, concrete pathway to the future they care about. And it's especially helpful if a person is not used to that kind of path, if they haven't had models. Like I grew up in a, I think of it as a lower middle class background in which there wasn't a lot of vision in my family, not critical. They just didn't have a sense of possibility of certain opportunities for me. So doors were never even named that I potentially could have pushed open um, in my teens and 20s you know, that then I had to kind of deal with the effects of that later in life. So part of the issue for people often is a sense of possibility, realistic, realistic, genuine possibility. But wow, if it's possible, 
Why not? To go to your point of comps, you know, if you know that many, many people who are less talented and less motivated and less good-hearted, frankly, um, and wholehearted than you have managed to get through this, well, huh. So that's my, that's my quick summary, you know, and the value of if there, if there are ways to kind of bring a quantitative analysis, boil it into numbers, or boil it into like, what would a typical day be like mm-hmm. in the status quo compared to what you could realistically create for yourself? Yeah. You know, midterm, like three to five years out, and then put those two typical days side by side, including the people you'd be with and the kinds of things you'd be doing and how people would be treating you and the, you know, financial and other rewards that would be coming to you. And then you put them side by side concretely. Then again, that can really, really inform your choice. It's so helpful to bring it down to earth and pull it out of the clouds of both anxiety on the one hand and sentimental wishfulness on the other. Yeah. And I think that you can apply a similar process to non-financial decisions, frankly. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, obviously the arithmetic is clearer when there's actual arithmetic that that can be done through the whole thing. But I think that if you think about making a, a relationship choice or making a choice around a kind of person, you know, you're trying to decide, is this kind of person good for me or not good for me? Um, is this the kind of relationship that I want to be in? Then really that idea of what does a typical day look like, I think is a really good idea because you start to get a lot of clarity around the 12 irritating moments that you kind of psychologically make up for because there's one really good moment toward the end of the day. But the 12 irritating moments are real too. And so that's not arithmetic necessarily in the conventional sense, but it's yeah. a way of balancing the, these costs and these benefits along a variety of different verticals. And obviously, we're both analytical people. We have this kind of analytical orientation in our lives. So I think that it's a good idea to bring it back to what you were saying at the very beginning of this whole process, which is use analysis to inform intuition, which I think is just a wonderful line. Um, and I think is a great encapsulation of everything that we've talked about here today, because the analysis is really, really helpful. The analysis gives you information. But at the end of the day, you make decisions based off of what feels good. And sometimes what can happen is the analysis can help the thing that you didn't really want to do feel better. And that's what the analysis is all about. But ultimately, again, we make these choices based on our feelings most of the time. And I think that that's really okay. That's okay. It's also okay to be analytical about it. It's okay to be driven by your heart. And it's okay to just have an overall framework around making decisions where you can run through a process about it. And it doesn't just have to be driven by a gut feeling. There can be something that's a little bit more substantial underpinning why you feel the way that you feel. In a way, we're talking about affective forecasting. Yeah, totally. Fancy phrase. You're basically imagining different scenarios, different futures, and then you're trying to imagine what it would, what you would feel, what it would be like for you in each one of those scenarios. So then you have, like, for example, the status quo scenario projected out a day, a year, 10 years. And then you have, let's say, the, the, the why scenario. You go to grad school or you leave the relationship or you find a different kind of relationship, and then you really ask yourself, what would it feel like to do that thing? And recently, I've had some choices where I thought I wanted to do something, but then when I really imagined what it would actually feel like in that situation I was kind of aiming toward, I realized I just didn't care that much. I didn't care that much. And what I actually cared about in that particular situation that I was hoping for, I realized I could get elsewhere, including just in my everyday life. So I didn't need to go down that road. So that's a real key, imagining different scenarios, making them as real as possible. This is where you could do little exercises of writing it out or getting pictures, talking about it, creating a dream board, to use that method, and then decide, hey, you know, is it worth it to me to do what it would take to get into scenario Y Instead of the scenario X, that's the projection of my status quo. The other thing I'll just maybe finish with is one of the most powerful little exercises I've ever done. And you can apply it to your life in general. You can apply it to your work. And you can apply it to a personal relationship. So write down, for example, a number of key values. 
that you have for, let's say, a romantic relationship or the kind of person you want to be with? What do you want to feel around them? Kind of related to that, the overlap. How do you want them to be? What do you, what do you want to be with over there? And what do you, which will help you feel certain things over here. So now you have, let's say, somewhere between five and 10 key words or terms. And then ask yourself, if you only got one, if you only got one, which one would you absolutely, first and foremost, want to keep? That's the deal breaker. Okay? So then, now you, you identified that, and no ties are allowed. This is part of the annoying but effective part of this method. You got that one. Take it off the board. Now you have the ones that remain. Maybe you started out with started with 10. One is taken away. Now there are nine. All right. Of the nine that remain, you only get one. Which is it? Identify it. Take it off the list. Now you're down to eight. You only get one. Which is it? And so forth. And then when you're done, you end up with a priority stack. It's a forced choice, to be sure. But there's something often very clarifying about it. And it tends to really cut through you know, the different voices in our head, the inner advertising agency, the other people who say, you ought to want X, you want to want Y. You know, at the end of the day, no, I care first and foremost about Z. Z is non-negotiable, and I can live without X or Y, although I like them, but definitely not. I can't live without Z. And that's, that's a very useful way of sorting it out. And then you can remember, you can remind yourself. It's been helpful for me sometimes to be, if I'm caught up in some kind of wrangle, with your mom, <laughs> my <laughs> wife, <laughs> or anybody else, really, yeah. or I'm staring at political TV and getting all mm-hmm. cranky about it. Mm-hmm. I just sort of ask myself, Rick, in your own one wild and precious life, probably mm-hmm. in the last third of it, what are your highest values? And um, are you living consistently with them right now? Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a great question. It's a really question. good wake-up call. Yeah, no, I think that's a beautiful organizing question. Um, and a great way to kind of frame everything that we've talked about if you need one practice to return to, to help you make some kind of an important choice. So I think that we ventured all over the place today. We ventured far and wide with this topic. Um, I think that it was organized enough. Uh, Let us know. You can shoot us an email at contact at beingwellpodcast.com if you have any thoughts or feedback about the show, or if you just want to say hi. Uh, We really appreciate everyone who takes the time to listen. And I think that with that said, That's all for our episode today. Today, we talked about making an important decision. And we started by exploring some of the common themes that tend to emerge when we're making that decision. One of these that comes up really frequently is this tension between the known and the unknown, how we can have a choice between playing it safe with what we know and taking a big swing at what we don't know. To help us make good decisions here, it can be helpful to have an awareness of different kinds of biases. Two that tend to come up pretty frequently are survivorship bias and then what we refer to as the warm bath, which is basically just kind of snowballing from one okay day to another, but things aren't really getting better. Then alongside that, we need to be really clear-eyed about what kind of safety nets we have, because that can give us a really good sense of whether or not we have the risk tolerance that's necessary to make a particular kind of risky decision. Then balancing the short-term and the long-term. There are a lot of things that are pleasant or unpleasant in the short-term that have the opposite result in the long-term, and it's good to know what our time horizon is and what our values are around whether we're going to prioritize that short-term enjoyment or that long-term gain. Then our values. What are the core values that are really going to drive our behavior? What are the things that we're going to really choose to prioritize in, as Rick said, this one wild and precious life? Then we switched over to Rick, and he gave a really good rundown of the ways to think about making a big decision. And he framed a lot of this in the language of a kind of cost-benefit analysis. What are the costs and what are the benefits? And then getting really granular about each. What are the benefits that are going to come to you intrinsically in terms of things like self-actualization? And then what are the extrinsic benefits? What are the things outside of yourself that are going to be supported in positive ways by you making this decision? What are the external rewards that you're going to get from it? Are you going to get social rewards? Are you going to get financial rewards? Different things to think about that do really matter in our lives. I gave the suggestion to get serious about things by committing pen to paper. 
It's really one thing to kind of hold all of this in the theater of the imagination, and it's another to write it down. I've had many painful moments when making lists of different kinds while trying to make a decision where it was really clarified to me what I should choose or not choose. Then we can estimate our realistic outcomes. Rick mentioned taking a kind of view from the porch, looking back over your life from a given age, from 50, 60, 70, 90 years old, and seeing the choice from that perspective to the extent possible. Also, we can work backward. We can paint a picture of what we want our life to look like when we're a certain age and start to work backward from that to where we are now making decisions around where we want to be at certain points in time, and then the choices that we need to make these days in order to support ourselves in the future. I also mentioned identifying comps, the person or persons, the situation that you're shooting for, that's kind of a realistic example of a good outcome for you if you choose a certain line of action. It's not a perfect outcome because it's very hard to achieve perfect outcomes, but it's a pretty darn good one. If you look at that version of things and you say, yeah, that seems really good to me, hey, that's a pretty good indicator that the choice that you're making is a good one for you. Along the way, Rick asked these three questions. What do you love doing? What are you naturally good at? And what do you value? Often our pursuits in life don't neatly fall into the intersection between those three things. But often we can find things that are closer to the center of that overlap than other things, and it can be a really good indicator of where we should be spending a lot of our time. Finally, Rick closed with a thought that again was about values, about paring down the list of the things that matter to you until you are forced to come to one or two or three or four, and that forcing yourself down to that compressed list can really make things very clarifying. So I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. It was a little sprawling, a little conversational. We kind of went a lot of different ways with it. And I hope that you still found it entertaining and useful as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. Also, if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and receive a whole bunch of bonuses that I put together in return. Until next time, thanks for listening. 